0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now I'd like for you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and our study is a series of messages that are entitled, The Spirit Speaks to Seven Churches. And these are the churches of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. They are real churches that existed at the close of the first century, and they were located in Asia Minor. We've examined two of these seven. The first was the church at Ephesus. That was a very good doctrinal and moral church. But they had a problem They left the primary purpose of the church of serving and glorifying Christ. The second church that we looked at is the church of Smyrna. And that church was commended by the Lord. There were no negatives to mention, and they were praised for withstanding intense persecution. And then the third church is the one we're studying now. That is the church at Pergamos. And it contrasted negatively to Smyrna because this was a church in the throes of compromise. This is a church that fought, it could hold on to both Christ and the world. And they believed that they could incorporate the worldly culture into their theology and their morality to the effect that they could end persecution. And foolishly, they thought that they could do that and remain in fellowship and good graces with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the answer of the Lord to this church is, you cannot. You cannot fellowship with the enemies of the cross and simultaneously embrace the cross, uh, the Christ of the cross. You cannot do it. From the beginning of His ministry, Jesus taught that if we want Him, the world will not want us, that persecution is inevitable, you will not escape it when you follow Him. So at some time, in some form, suffering is the design of, of God for his people. Now an important scripture for rejecting fellowship with the world is in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, where he said, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. And he went on to say that you can't be a follower of Christ and a follower of Satan. Christ and Satan are never going to get together. You cannot fellowship with Satan. Well, now we turn our attention to this Pergaming Church to finish the exposition Of the Lord's letter to them. And this letter begins, first of all, with the Word of Christ. It speaks of the Word of Christ. And the Word is symbolized by a sharp, double edged sword in verse number 12. This is the message of Christ to this church. Second uh, Revelation, rather, chapter 2, and verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos, write These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed and idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of thy mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Jesus begins this letter by rejecting the need for compromise. And we must reject it because the Word of God is more powerful than the enemy. The Word of God is alive, it can subdue, it convicts and it changes the hearts of those that stand against Christ. It will convict them. And to the ones that... God does not see fit to convict, He condemns, and they will be brought before God's judgment, which is far more to be feared than the Roman courts of law. The Word also makes promises. It promises to protect and preserve those that believe. And even though we see in the New Testament that persecution killed many Christians, many of them became martyrs, yet that's not a problem, because what Christ has promised is eternal life for those that believe in Him. Now the suffering of this life is only a pothole on the way to victory, final victory in heaven. And so as he says to the other churches, overcomers have the eternal hope of that promise that Christ will return, that Christ will be victorious and those who are believers will live in eternity with him. Believers are not going to suffer the fate of unbelievers. The unbeliever will be cut to pieces by the two-edged sword. I know that sounds violent, It doesn't fit the perception of most that they have of Christ, but the truth is God is righteousness, that His integrity, His holiness will be upheld, and God will not stand evil. He's the God of justice, and crimes against His holiness are not tolerated. And if we believe less than that about Jesus Christ, then we really don't understand who He is. We we don't really understand God's justice, justice and why he sent christ why he became incarnate and why he died he became a man in order to satisfy god for our crimes and he did that through the death of the cross he wouldn't tolerate sin he wouldn't tolerate sin when it was put on christ no christ had to die and so you needn't believe that he'll tolerate it in you if he wouldn't when it was on his own dear son Now, most of those in the church at Pergamos ignored God's hatred of sin, and they thought that the present suffering was more to be feared than eternal judgment. And so they invited the culture into the church. But we notice that there is one among them, at least one among them who didn't. For him, compromise was not an option. His name is Antipas, and he was proof that Christians can stand for the faith. You can do it. And the Lord recognized him, and today he lives on in the pages of Scripture as an outstanding example of courage against the fires of the devil. But Antipas, Antipas was not typical of Christians in Pergamos. This is a city that's the stronghold of Satan, and the devil had successfully undermined the steadfastness of believers in this city. Christ said that Pergamos was a place of Satan's throne. And I don't believe that he was speaking metaphorically. I think because, uh, I know that because of the magnificent temple that was of Zeus that's standing high above the city, some believe that Satan's throne is only a metaphor, it's only a figure of speech indicating Satan's influence in that place. I believe it's much more than that. Satan is the god of this world. He counterfeits the god of heaven and it's reasonable to believe that he has a throne here somewhere on this earth just as surely as God has a throne in heaven. Satan's throne cannot be in heaven because he's been cast out to the earth. And so his throne must be somewhere. And in the first century, it appears from this text, centrally located in the Roman Empire where he can fight against the church, he has a throne in the city of Pergamos. And so you imagine the evil that must have been there. Imagine the stints of wickedness in that place. Wherever Satan dwells, you can can well imagine that's a horrible place. Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at the same time like Christ is. And so there must be a place where he directs the traffic of all of his demons that go around the world doing his evil work. And that place where this happens must be foul and black and putrid. And though Satan may make the place where he dwells an attractive place, he may like make the darkness look good. And no doubt the beautiful temples of the heathen gods in Pergamus were, were great places where people liked to visit and they admired the architecture. But that whole worship was sensual. It satisfied the desires of men's lust and all of that. It's just a hellhole of destruction. And what pergamine Christians had done was to join in that foul stench and they had compromised the beauty of Christ with the cesspools of Satan. You need to remember this when you decide that you're going to make friends with the world. Remember it when you decide that you will tolerate wicked lifestyles that God says are an abomination. It's for those sins and other sins like those, all sin, that Christ died. And when you accept it into your life and into your home and into your marriage and into your church, you're doing the devil's work when you do it. So this is Pergamos. This is a diabolical place. Satan is there. His demons are there. And yet Jesus said, My sword will conquer it all. The word will overcome. Believe. And you will have victory. Well, there was a faithful martyr who believed it. But he was one of only a few. And so in verse number 14, after commending Antipas, the Lord proceeds with his complaint against the church. His complaint is about the worldliness of the church. That second, the worldliness of the church. Pergamene Christians had sunk back into the world. And what Christ does is to save people out of the world. He saves His people to be a voice against the world. He saves them to be a beacon of light against the culture and its wickedness. Christ wants a pure, unspotted, blameless church. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to get that into our hearts. We've got to understand it very clearly. We are commanded to be holy. That admits to no compromise. Never in the least does Christ allow sin into his church. We are sinners that are saved by God's grace. We are justified and yet we are still sinful. And so there's always this constant fight to put down sin in our lives. It's hard to do that, and every Christian who's involved in that fight, as you are, if you are a believer, you know it's very difficult to put sin to death in your life. It's serious enough that the Bible classifies it as warfare. It says that we're in a constant spiritual battle. But victory's not impossible. The same spirit that spoke to people in Pergamos is the same that promises power today. We see it in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. They fought spiritual wickedness in high places. And so, as it says there, with the shield of faith, with the helmet of salvation, and the breastplate of righteousness, with the loins that are girt about with truth, these Christians carried the sword of the Word of God into battle to fight against Satan. And the Bible says that we have available to us all of these weapons and defenses that we can fight off Satan. We can stand our ground for Christ. Surrender is not an option with God's people. These are mighty weapons and defenses that are used in Holy Spirit power. And when we do that, Satan knows that he's headed for defeat. He can't overcome God. And so his best tactics are to take those weapons and those defenses out of your hands. If he can ruin your faith, then you'll not know how to use God's weapons. And so what does he do? He twists Christ's teachings. He twists them to say that real Christians don't actually fight. Real Christians, loving Christians, tolerate everything. Satan twists the truth. And says that we shouldn't be critical of those who live in sin. He tells us to leave them alone because Christ will take them just as they are. And he'll leave them the way that they are. Because above all, what Christ wants is for people to be happy and to be peaceful and to be content in the life that they live. That's a lie. It's a lie. Because the Bible says that Christ will change us. He wants our lives to be like his life. And to do that, he has to root out every sin. None of the sin can stay. His standard is found in the commandments and he permits no violations of the commandments. So what I'm trying to tell you, essentially what we're looking at here is a message that is a demand for holiness. Now what are Christ's complaints against this church? First, in this church at Pergamos, there is a problem of idolatry. If Pergamos was Satan's throne then you can be sure that Satan's religion dominated. The temple of Zeus dominated the city, standing high above it on a massive outcropping of rock. Physically, that looked like a ruling throne. But perhaps more important than the temple of Zeus was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. He's kind of peculiar to uh, the Pergamenes. This is their main god the temple at Asclepios, and Pergamus was this cultural center of the medical arts because their main god is a healing god. The Pergamenes' claim to fame was healing and education through the thousands of parchments that were in their massive library. So Pergamus allowed no changes to that cultural status, that cultural identity, and Christianity was clearly a threat to it. And so in Pergamos, they stepped up the persecution because Christianity taught there are no healing gods. None of that is real. There is only one true living God. Pergamos was also committed to the worship of the deity of the Caesars. The oath that all were required to take is that Caesar is Lord. And to deny that oath is death. And so without due process, the Roman proconsul would hand out death sentences to those who would not Swear their allegiance. And this is our problem. Their problem. The imminent danger of death. This is their problem. The imminent danger of death. Caused Pergamene Christians to reason it out. And to say what will it hurt. If we oppose or appease rather the Romans. By just mouthing the words. Caesar is Lord. If we compromise just a little. What will that hurt? History proves. What it hurts. If Caesar is Lord, then Christ is not Lord. And so there was a fake, compromising Christianity that arose that was filled with Caesar's idols. Idolatry violates God's first commandments. Compromise is not innocuous. Compromise destroys the gospel of Christ. It keeps eyes blinded to the truth. Idolatry is the surrender to Satan's throne. And it was the seeds of compromise that caused Christians to accept the idols of Caesar. If you know your history, then you know that by the time of Constantine, about the 4th century, before he was through, Christians uh, had heathen idols in their churches, heathen temples gave way to Christian churches, and the idols of saints were just replaced the idols of Rome. Just had different names, but the worship went on. So the first problem here is idolatry. We've talked about that in the last message, so we won't continue to speak of that. But rather we need to examine the second problem of this church, and this is the problem of immorality. Verse number 14 says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. This verse addresses both problems, idolatry and immorality. There's an Old Testament reference here that's used to highlight a New Testament problem. Can you imagine what it would be like to have your name in the Bible? Antipas has his name written in the Bible. And there are millions upon millions of Bibles in the world. Each of you has a Bible. I was talking to, um, I can't remember who it was, the other day, and we're talking about how many Bibles that we have. And this person told me he has many, many, many Bibles. And um, I got to thinking about all the Bibles that I have. I don't have room on the bookshelf for all the Bibles that I have. And you know that every one of those Bibles is the name Antipas. He's remembered because his name is in the Bible. But I would also tell you, for all the gold in Fort Knox, there are some people in the Bible I don't want to be. One of them is Judas. Who wants to be a Judas? That thought is so horrific that nobody names their children Judas. I wouldn't be, want to be some of the kings of Israel. I would not want to be Ahab. I wouldn't want to be Manasseh. Despite all the wealth and power they had, I don't want to be them. Balaam is one of those that you don't want to be. Well, being in the Bible is great notoriety, but I'd never want to be him. He's one of the worst. He's the Lord's poster child for despicable religious hucksters. New Testament references to Balaam are laced with contemptible language. There's nothing good said about Balaam. He was a subversive prophet that fleeced God's people for personal gain. Balaam is known as the hireling prophet. Uh, You could compare him to religious hucksters like Benny Hinn or Creflo Dollar or Kenneth Copeland. And And I think, put up side by side with those men, maybe he looks a little better. Almost like a saint compared to them. But he wasn't a saint. He just happened to know a little bit more truth about God than Copeland and Hinn and the others that are like them. Peter said... That Balaam loved the wages of unrighteousness. And notice in Second Peter how he compares false prophets to Balaam. He says, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, and heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way, and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozor, who loved the wages of of unrighteousness. There we have the Bible's description of the word of faith preachers of today. The they have gone in the way of Balaam. Well, naturally, this raises the question in our minds, who is Balaam? What did Balaam do, and why do we have this example of Balaam here in Revelation chapter 2? How does the story of Balaam encapsulate the pergaming problem? Well, I have time to relate the story only briefly to you, for more information you need to do homework and so you might want to write down numbers chapters 22 through 25 where you can read the story of Balaam. So just very briefly when when Israel was on the way to Canaan in the Exodus that is when they had left Egypt they crossed the wilderness of Sinai where they received the law of God. And as you know they were often rebellious they were complaining and disobedient, and because of that disobedience, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness on a journey that should have taken, at most, two or three weeks. Their trek through the wilderness finally led them close to Canaan, and the shortest distance to get in was to go through the land of Moab. Moab is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and Israel would enter into Canaan, traveling westward to go across the Jordan River near Jericho. But the king of Moab, whose name was Balak, saw this horde of Israelites that were marching towards him with their tabernacle and with the splendor of this huge cloud of smoke that they followed in the daytime and a pillar of fire that was there at night. And Balaam was scared to death of this god. And so he thought they were a threat, a threat that he would be defeated, and so he knew that power and had to do something about it. So he tried to find a prophet who knew the God of Israel that could help him. And he was determined that he would pay this prophet handsomely to put a curse on Israel and God would destroy them. Balaam is the prophet that Balak chose to do that dirty work. And Balaam was willing to do it because he loved the sound of clinking coins. Numerous times he tried to curse Israel, but God wouldn't permit it. So Balaam knew enough. ...about God, how powerful that God is. He knew, I can't challenge God. As long as God says, you can't do this, I can't do it. And so he continually told Balak, I can't do it. But, Balaam really wanted the money. And so he came up with another scheme... ...where he could get his hands on this money. And this was to fool God's people... ...and then get God to do the work for him. And sure enough... Balaam proved himself highly capable of accomplishing that task. He could not curse the people of God directly, but if he could get them to sin, then this God of justice would curse the people himself. And if he could do that, if he could get get the people to sin, then he could claim this reward by diabolical advice without being directly responsible for the curse. This scheme is known as the incident at Baal Peor. Now, to understand why it worked, you need to understand Moabites. They were a cruel, promiscuous, debauched people that had a religion that was based upon orgiastic perversion. This makes Balaam's scheme fit perfectly into the devil's work against the Christians in Pergamos. Why? Why? because Greeks and Romans had a very similar religion. They had a very similar religion, essentially the same as the orgiastic perversion of the Moabites. Sexual immorality was the way in to this church. So Balaam advised Balak to entice the men of Israel with Moabite women. They would appeal to their basic human depravity, And they would pursue these enticing women and they would intermarry with them. Do I need to tell you what a perverse society will do for sex? So they were willing to do anything, the Moabite women asked. And what would these women do? And what was Balaam's plan? They would trade their favors for commitment to their gods. And that plan was successful. The men of Israel married the Moabite women... They began to follow the Moabite gods. And what did God do? Chastised them for their idolatry. That plan was only a temporary victory because Moab and Balak didn't know anything about God's forgiveness when God's people repent. Now we see this with the Pergamene church because God promised to help them and not destroy them if they would repent. Now let me read to you the incident at Baal Peor from Numbers 25. And Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now listen to Balaam's connection. This is in Numbers 31. Behold, these caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam, to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. And the result of that plague was the death of 22,000 Israelites. Now imagine then God's contempt for Balaam, and you'll understand why he gets no respect in the Scriptures. He is God's poster child of contempt. And so in Revelation chapter 2, Christ compares the Moabite culture to the enticements of Christians... In Pergamos. And what compromising Christians had done there in that church was to bring idolatry and immorality into the church. Satan's plan for Pergamos was the same as Balaam's. It's the same plot. Destroy the church from the inside by infiltrating it with immoral culture. And when the church gives in, then God will do the same as he did at Baal Peor. Culture, this culture... And Christianity cannot coexist. Now the stumbling block of Balaam is idolatry and immorality. The text says fornication. And that's one of Satan's chief methods of attack. It's always been sexual immorality. You read the many times that this list or tops the list of sins in Scripture. And so from Old Testament Israel and their long history of forays forays into sexual immorality to the New Testament church, fornication is cited as a condemning sin. This is a sin that keeps showing up. Now the worship of idols in the Old Testament was spiritual adultery and God used that term to describe the greatest sin of the church. Idolatry is still spiritual adultery and sexual sins are the way of of Balaam the son of Bozor. Now let me take just a minute to examine this term fornication. Figuratively, in this passage, it's about adultery, or idolatry rather. But the broader meaning is to transpose the thought of unfaithfulness and physical adultery in marriage over top of spiritual unfaithfulness of compromising with the culture. That's the fornication mainly that it speaks of here, although it certainly doesn't include the other. The culture distorts sex. Satan works to bring that distortion into the church and he labels it as fairness and tolerance and acceptance and Christian charity. But no matter what Satan says, the Bible says that the sexes are distinct. That God created them male and female. There is a biological difference between them and God separates the one from the other with this distinction. God's always making distinctions and I'll show you why in just a moment. But He makes these distinctions like making animals different from man. Those are separate and distinct. He separated light and darkness. He separated the heavens from the earth. He separated the seas from the dry land. And without those essential separations... There is chaos. This is why God makes things orderly, because without order there is chaos. And so likewise, males cannot become females and vice versa. To do that is to invite chaos. It's unnatural. And thus sodomy and transvestism and gender change are not arrangements that fit God's standard of righteousness. It's sin. And since the beginning of time, it's always been considered sin. And so we read in the Scriptures from first to last, Old Testament and New Testament, there is danger in crossing that boundary. There's a wall of separation that's longer and higher than Trump's Mexican wall. But Satan picks at the wall. He hammers at the wall. And the church today is guilty of helping Satan break down that wall brick by brick. And so all major denominations in the United States have fought this battle of sexual preference until most of them have given in and they've given over to sexual license and nearly every form of perversion. And they call it humility, they call it healthy, they call it acceptable, and they say it's loving, but it doesn't fit the Bible's standard of righteousness. The Bible has not changed in one word about this. From first to last, it calls it vile, perverse wickedness. Sexual promiscuity is chaos. Cultures from ancient times until now have proved it to be true. Romans 1 teaches that sexual promiscuity is the last straw before God gives a culture over to the reprobate mind. You say, what is this reprobate mind? Well, this is when God is no longer working to keep man from destroying himself. That God no longer grants repentance and faith. God's no longer working, and He gives the culture over to do its worst to its own destruction. All forms of sexual promiscuity are included. Today, pornography is acceptable, and the church is as much plagued with it as the rest of the world. It's normalized. Now your children grow up with it. They have no conscience towards it. And so it's no wonder kids are in gender confusion today. It's no wonder marriage is becoming a bygone institution. Now much of the irony of this whole thing is the inconsistency of it. Only in the last few years has the LBGTQ movement embraced transgenderism. And you know they wouldn't do it before? And you know why? Because one of the basic arguments for homosexuality has long been that people are born what they are, that they can't change. And then along comes a person who changes their sexual orientation. A male becomes a female, vice versa. So what's more antithetical to their argument that sexual orientation cannot change? You see, reason has not always been their strong point. Sexual perversion is unnatural and far more are tortured by that than are happy and live in happiness with an unnatural choice. Now, simply put, God made them male and female. God separated them biologically, and the unnatural use of sex brings destruction. So the conclusion for modern Christians who believe the Bible and demand that we live by the Bible's morality and we maintain the distinctions, we have become the bane of society. We are now the enemies of the culture, and they demand that either we accept them or we just go out of existence. We don't belong here with them. Oh, the law has made human sexuality a human rights issue. And so Christians that believe the Bible are made to be violators of human rights. And as an American, what is more American than standing for human rights? Therefore, Christians are not good Americans. And so your choice today is either America or God. How upside down is that compared to the way this country was founded? Our forefathers never said it is God or us. Oh, they declared that our freedoms are God-given freedoms, God-given rights, which in their estimation could never make us the enemies of the God who gave them. Compromising with the world cannot be the way to victory in Christ. We see it very plainly in our text when Christ says, Repent, repent, or I will come and fight against you. Can I ask you a question? Is Christ fighting against America today? You decide... Is America in greater turmoil since the sexual revolution? You decide, are your families happier than they've been at any time? Happier than they were before? You decide, do you feel safe and secure in this America? People are at each other's throats because God-given distinctions are not maintained and the church that maintained the good moral conscience of the people is no more. Yesterday I had the opportunity to talk with a police officer. We were just discussing how that the American public hates the police. Are we seriously in trouble when we hate the people that are sworn to protect us because they're not doing exactly what we think that they ought to do? They're upholding the law, but we don't like the law? This is what we get. When you don't have a good moral conscience, you've got problems with the people. There's chaos. Now finally, Jesus said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. So I'm going to finish up this series on this church just as the Lord does with number three, the wake-up for the church. I don't know if you've doubted the original premise and the purpose of these studies. As I said a few moments ago, the Bible is relevant, the Bible is current. This reads like it was written last week. Jesus called for repentance And then, as usual, in each message, there's a promise for those who will repent. Verse 17, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now the imagery of of this verse is just rich, It could lead me into another sermon, and you know that's very hard for me to resist. But four sermons on this church have probably exhausted what you're willing to hear from the Spirit. So I'll be very brief as we conclude. Two words occupy us in the final observation of this text. The first word is provision, the assurance of provision. Those that overcome will be given hidden manna. Now, to understand the Scriptures, you've got to be a student of both the Old and the New Testaments. Old Testament symbols are explained in New Testament Scriptures. That couldn't be any clearer than our study of the sacrifices on Sunday evenings. Manna is an Old Testament reference, and it's used because Christians in Pergamus and in this time, had nothing to use but the Old Testament. Now, at this time, some of the earlier books of the New Testament had been written, but they weren't widely circulated so that everybody had those books in their possession. And so they were reading out of the Old Testament. They're still essentially getting truths that come out of the Old Testament. And so the Lord uh, expands on things that are written in the Old Testament in the text of John chapter 6. Now, I'd like you to turn there, if you would, so we can look at this together. In John chapter 6, Jesus has something to say about manna. Manna was Israel's food in the wilderness. It was miraculous. It came down from God out of heaven. But after Israel entered Canaan, they they no longer needed manna. And so there was a golden pot of manna that was preserved and placed into the Ark of the Covenant to remind the people of God's provision. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus explains the spiritual significance of manna. In John chapter 6 and verse number 48, Jesus said, I am that bread of life. Now he's talking about coming down from heaven, about manna from heaven, and talking about the example from the Old Testament. I am that bread of life. Your fathers, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Why did Jesus say this at this particular time? Well, there was a legend that was popular with the Jews that when the temple was destroyed, and Jesus had talked about that as well, that when the temple was destroyed, uh, Jeremiah took the Ark of the Covenant with its pot of manna and he hid it under the Temple Mount. Now, I can tell you the legend is not true unless we deny 1 Kings 8, verse 9, which says that in Solomon's time, long before Jeremiah, there was anything in the ark but the tables of the law. But regardless, there's this popular myth among the Jews that manna is somewhere hidden, maybe under the Temple Mount, and that manna will be discovered. And so it may well be that Jesus was replying to that rumor and saying, no, you don't need that. The real manna is me. I came down from heaven to be your provision. Now, if you want to use the word hidden, the Apostle Paul used that word in Colossians 3 when he said that in Christ is hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, Christians view the pot of manna in a different way. We view it as a promise that we're going to enter into a new age when Christ will be supreme and he will provide protection, the provision, that all that we need for life and happiness. Manna is the promise that the bread of heaven will come down again. That is Jesus Christ, the living bread, will come back down again and he will dwell with us. Now another view is that manna was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, the purpose of it, it was hidden beneath the mercy seat, showing that Christ is God's life-sustaining provision. In other words, the life of Christ is what upholds the law of God. He's the manna of eternal life that will feast on forever. Now, finally, is the word intimacy. In the passage, there is the promise of intimacy. And I will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. I will give him a white stone. Count your fingers and your toes, and you'll have less than the number of the interpretations of this saying. There's much speculation about the white stone and the name that no one knows. And invariably, somebody's going to ask the preacher, what is the name that nobody knows? And that's enough explanation. Don't ask that question in form class, please. So I I think there are two credible explanations for the white stone. I I favor the second one. I'll explain it in just a moment. The first one is that the stone is emblematic of a stone that was given to victors of athletic games. That this was a stone that they carried with them that gave them a lifetime admission to all subsequent games. That's the ticket in. The victors symbolize those who believe in Christ. Their victory is in him. And so they are admitted into all the glories that God has prepared for his children. And that would be an appropriate usage since Greeks and Romans were big supporters of athletics. They would understand the reference. And that's certainly a characteristic of modern churches as well. During the football season, such as we're in now, there's a lot of talk in the foyer about football. More about football than about Christ. And I'll tell you, folks, that is a source of some of my irritation, and I don't think it's very attractive to our visitors. When I'm thinking about preaching a sermon on Sunday, I don't care too much to be distracted by all the sports that are going on and not thinking about preaching the sermon. Now, I can be slightly persuaded, if you want to talk Kentucky basketball, that's my second religion, that part would be all right. The second explanation of the white stone I like better. In these letters, Jesus keeps me- making these statements that parallel their experiences. He uses these to show that he's better, that he's stronger, that he stands above everything they fear. For example, we saw that uh, the sword of the mouth that Jesus mentioned is more powerful than the sword of Rome, the right of the sword of the Roman government. In Pergamus. There was a superstition that if you carried the name of your God on a pebble in your pocket, then you had the power to summon that God to your aid whenever you needed him. And if you kept the name of your God a secret so that nobody else knew it, then he was your special God. And that increased the power of God upon the owner of the stone. Now, since... Those are not gods, and that stone does not represent a real God. Jesus said, I'll give you a stone that has a name that they don't know. Its power is only for believers. Only those who know Jesus Christ and God the Father, and only they are the ones that can use it. Your stones don't do anything. So you don't need to carry that stone any more than a person needs to carry an image of a saint around his neck, put a Saint Christopher in his car, neither crucifix nor amulet is going to help you because there is no power in that. Christians need none of that because we're always safe and secure in the power of the one true living God. Now notice it is a white stone. White often symbolizes righteousness. And we're right with God in only one way. We are right in Christ. There's no reason... To compromise. This is why we can't compromise. Because with the world's perversions, we can never be right. There is no advantage of any kind in accepting the world's standards. So the way of Christ is the way of life and peace. And why don't we trade it for the goods of this world? Why do we count everything in this world as loss? Because chaos and confusion are not for Christians Christ gives a new name to those that are believers in him. In the Old Testament, Abram became Abraham. Jacob became Israel. Now in this, Jesus trumps pagans. Did you know also the Caesars were given new names? Octavius became Augustus. Jesus gives a better name. You know what it is? And I'm not trying to decipher the name that nobody knows. But I do know that he gives Christians a better name. We were sinners. And now we're saints. Jesus gives a better name. Now the question for Christians living in a Pergamene world where Satan's throne is, is where are we going to stake our claim? Who are we going to stand with? Are we going to compromise with the God of this world? Are we going to stand with the God of all worlds? Berean Baptist Church has staked its claim. The California culture and the Sonoma County culture is the worst for chaos and confusion in this country. We are the birthplace of counter-Christian culture that has put the entire country in its chaotic death grip. In two years, Berean Baptist Church will reach 50 years. And in that 50 years, we have never departed from the charter of the church. We will not stand with the culture. We'll stand with Christ. And I'm happy to stick with that stand. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today acknowledging that we are sinners. Acknowledging, Lord, that we can't do anything for ourselves. We're hopelessly lost in our sins. We can't depend on anything that we do that will pull us out of that deep hole that we're in. The only one who can is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, Lord, by your mercy and your grace that you grant repentance and faith today and that people may come and they can receive all the benefits of the blessings that are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. But we do also know that in this country, the time of... Revival may be over. It looks like it is. Our country has turned to this immorality. Religion has turned to idolatry. People are in love with themselves, which is the worst idolatry of all. And so we have rejected you. We have rejected your commandments. We have rejected everything there is to do with you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would convict our hearts to take that stand. Not to give in to the idolatry and the immorality of this world. To do so is to destroy the influence of the church over this culture. And we know, Lord, that you will not stand the church that will not stand for you. It didn't happen in Pergamos, and it will not happen here. Strengthen your people, Lord, for the days ahead, for the fight that is ahead, the spiritual battles, the warfare that your word speaks of. Give us the faith by your Spirit to endure the hardship of standing for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roanoke, Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, roanoke Park, California,